This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best, and with me as my co-host is Hannah Levitt. Although we have barely exposed the tip of the iceberg for eugenics, this will be our third and final episode on the topic. In the previous episodes, we learned about the science of genetics and about past practices of eugenics. So in this episode, Hannah, can you give our guests a little bit of background as to what we're going to hear? Sure, David. In today's podcast, we've switched it up a little bit, and Peter Field will be interviewing our guest today. And our guest today is Jeffrey Riom, Associate Professor in Disability Studies at York University. So he's going to be sharing with us uh, more about the topic of eugenics. Up till now, we've been sharing stories about experiences with eugenics and all kinds of opinions about eugenics. But today we're actually going to look at at archival documentation, like real documents that existed discussing eugenics, sterilization as it pertains to blind people in Canada today. So we'd like to welcome Peter and Jeffrey to open this discussion. Hello, Jeffrey. Welcome to Triple Vision. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I know you very well because we've worked together for six months now on the Pandora Project, but I don't think all of our listeners know who you are. Can you just introduce yourself and tell us uh, tell sure. us who you are? Yeah, by all means. Um, my name is Jeffrey uh, Rayom, and I'm a professor of critical disability studies at York University and, and teach mainly in history, disability history, and mad people's history, and uh, history of healthcare ethics. And so... Uh, my interest is in uncovering disability history in Canada and elsewhere, and I'm very happy to be here and discuss uh, the history of, of people who are blind in Canada and elsewhere as well. Today, we are going to be looking at some archival history. As David and Hannah have said, for the last two episodes of Triple Vision, we've been talking about eugenics. But today, we're going to really drill down into some of the archival information that we found uh, regarding specifically eugenics and blind persons in Canada. In a minute, Jeff, we're going to have you read out a letter from an A.R. Kaufman. We're going to have a discussion about who he was and, and who he was writing to. Just want to let everybody know that this content may be disturbing to some people. Certainly, when I came across it, I found it quite disturbing. So just just Really quickly, in terms of a preface, one more preface before we get started. When we started the Pandora Project, it was it was to look in archives and uncover history of, of Canadians who are blind, deaf, blind, partially sighted. So this really gets to the heart of the project and the, um, the heart of our Triple Vision podcast. So Jeffrey, in front of you, you have a letter from an A.R. Kaufman uh, to Captain Baker. 
who was the managing, managing director of the CNIB at the time. It's a fairly long letter, but I think it's worth you reading it out because there's, there's so much in it. It's packed with so much history. Um, can I get you to read it out? Sure. Okay. So this letter is dated December 2, 1938. Um, and it's from A.R. Kaufman to the CNIB and it directed to uh, Captain Edward Baker. On September 11, 1937, wrote Kaufman, I, I wrote referring to my letter of December 19, 1936. I received an acknowledgement dated September 21, 1937, stating that when Captain Baker returns from the Maritimes, your letter will be brought to his attention. I have heard nothing further and wish to repeat that I think my correspondent merits at least consideration, even if you do not agree with my views. I also think I am entitled to know the views of your board. My immediate reason for writing is to inform you in regard to the statement of Dr. J.M. Ritchie, blind principal of the London Society for Teaching and Training the Blind. And Dr. Ritchie said, quote, sterilize all blind persons wishing to marry and thus stamp out hereditary blindness. The state should take steps to see that it is a physical impossibility for such people to have children, end quote. Dr. Ritchie spoke at a meeting of the Kent County Association for the Blind at Maidstone, and the audience was composed mainly of blind persons and numbered more than 200. His statement was greeted with loud applause and general approval. Dr. Ritchie became blind about three years ago after working all of his life in the interests of the blind. I just obtained the above information from a newspaper clipping and assume it is correct. You may not be aware of the fact that in June 1938, the annual report of the Canadian Medical Protective Association appeared in, the, in which appeared the following statements. Many requests were received for information regarding the legality of sterilization of healthy individuals. If the number of inquiries about this subject which reached our office can be used as a basis for judgment, it seems to be of increasing importance. Letters have been received about it from all parts of the Dominion. The Executive Committee has been unable to discover any decision in Canadian courts which can be used as a precedent on which to base an opinion. Our General Counsel gave us an opinion based on English laws. Sterilization of a healthy individual, even when releases have been obtained from patient and marital partners, absolutely illegal, and so forth. And quote. This is Kaufman continuing on with his letter. I have had legal advice to perhaps a greater extent than the Canadian Medical Protective Association. And while I agree that there is some risk in sterilizing a patient, I can add that my bureau has been responsible for over 500 sterilization and there has been no legal action up to date. I note that the Medical Protective Association a report refers to the sterilization of healthy individuals and doesn't com does not comment on the legality of unhealthy ones. My opinion is that individuals lack normal health when they are blind or are afflicted with various diseases or mental deficiency. Do, I do not approve of abortion, but my guess is that there are thousands of abortions in Canada yearly and seldom is the offending doctor brought into court in spite of the fact that abortions are definitely illegal. Sterilization patients are so grateful that, in my estimation, going to court to sue for damages does not occur to them or interest them. Cooperative doctors in Canada have sterilized 500 individuals on request of my bureau, and only in about a dozen cases has there been paid even a small. I commend the doctors for the courage of their convictions and thank them for their cooperation but it is unfortunate that politicians cannot see their way clear to legally encourage the medical fraternity in its constructive work. 
I do not understand how the Canadian National Institute for the Blind can ignore sterilization when constructively striving to meet their objective, which, according to their letterhead, is to ameliorate the condition of the blind of Canada and to prevent blindness. If you realize that you're going to invite complications by taking any active part in the sterilization of blind people, I suggest you send the names to me without any further comment. Mm -hmm. I have facilities to arrange sterilizations since my bureau has blind people sterilized without your cooperation. It will likely be um, easier still if we get the names from you, of course, um, and we understand that all sterilizations are voluntary. We do not wish it otherwise, as we have our hands full with those who are anxiously waiting for sterilization. I hope to hear from you by letter stating the opinion of your board on the question of sterilization. If you prefer to discuss the matter verbally, I can call you at your office, for, as I'm in Toronto frequently. I'll appreciate knowing the approximate percentage of your patients who are afflicted with congenital blindness. And he signs himself A.R. Kaufman, Kaufman or Rubber Company, Kitchener, Ontario. Yeah, thank you for reading that, Jeffrey. Um, there's a lot happening in that letter, and we can we can sort of pull it apart. And there's other... There's other places we want to take the discussion, but let's start with the first question, which was, who was A.R. Kaufman? Yes, A.R. Kaufman was a rich businessman from Kitchener, Ontario. He was born there when it was called Berlin. Of course, it was renamed Kitchener during World War I because of anti-German prejudice. Um, Kaufman was a businessman who, in 1907, at the age of 22, with the support of his parents, his father, who was uh, well to do, um, so started the Kaufman Rubber Company, and he became a very, very um, well-known birth control advocate. He was also a, a very, very strong proponent of eugenics um, and very, very, very enthusiastic about sterilizing people with any sort of disability, a congenital disability particularly, as well as poor people and very uh, basically wanting to use eugenics um, to prevent any sort of social reforms and to maintain the social order. He's he's been um, well well documented in different articles and books. Um, an article by Linda uh, Ravi, published in the Canadian Bulletin of Medical History, in two thousand six, uh, writes about the bureau, which he refers to in his. His letter to mm -hmm. um, to Baker, um, which was called the Parent Information Bureau, uh, which was a utterly pro eugenics bureau, which basically uh, provided not only birth control information but uh, sterilization uh, right on the premises of his factory. And he mm -hmm. he was the head That's of right. this bureau from 1930 to 76, and he continued his pro eugenics views. Uh, he died at the age of 93 in 1979. The his pro-eugenics views, according to Ravi, can be traced all the way to 1976 when he was 1971, um, when he was writing about um, having pro-eugenical views in 1976. And uh, some of his views, to say the least, are disturbing, to put it mildly, in, in, mm -hmm. in a um, book by Angus McLaren, published in 1990 on eugenics, Our Own Master Race. Uh, Angus McLaren is a historian. And he mm -hmm. quotes uh, Kaufman on page 148 of his book as writing in 1941 the following. Judging from newspaper reports, etc., Hitler's methods of getting rid of the parasites are harsh but effective. That was A.R. Kaufman in 1941 really? when the well, whole world... 
knew yeah. what Adolf Hitler was doing. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, he, he really was a despicable <clears throat> human being. And there, mm-hmm. there are, to this day, uh, places in Kitchener named after this man. Really? And he was really, uh, anybody who, there are people who claim he was this great philanthropist and mm-hmm. so on. Sure, he was if you were a white person and you were mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. able-bodied and were not disabled, but he hated disabled people. He hated poor people. He was virulently anti-union. He uh, paid his workers very poorly. When they struck, he was absolutely refused to negotiate with them. He, he really was a, a poison chalice and was not a person who should be honored or memorialized in public buildings mm-hmm. or parks or what have you. And he caused enormous harm to large numbers of mm. people. There's a, uh, an academic paper that I read in researching for this uh, called More Than Just Boots, because that's what his fa- yes, factory made was, was okay. yes, right, Revy's paper. So he was concerned that, um, I'll paraphrase from the paper, something like uh, that we were breeding from the bottom up. So he's very much, uh, very much had a class mentality. Um, mm-hmm. We know that sterilizations took place inside his factory. He had clinics as well. Just maybe a couple more things about him, and then we'll kind of move on to see what uh, how the CNIB responded to this letter. Um, he was called the uh, father of Canadian birth control. So as you mentioned, it was a very big proponent of birth control. But he didn't. He wasn't providing people birth control because he 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 felt they should have sort of safe recreational sex. He was providing birth control as a means of eugenics. He was also the treasurer of the Canadian Eugenics Society, so yes, um, he true. was definitely in the forefront of this. So he um, for two years he persists in writing to the CNIB, sort of saying, "I don't understand why you won't be sending me people to sterilize." We have the copy of Captain Baker, and as you said, Captain Baker was then the managing director, the CEO of CNIB at the time. We we have a copy of his response, but it's basically the, the, the PDF version we have from the archives is basically illegible. So we've gone to Euclid Harry's book called Journey to Independence, and I want to thank Mark Workman from last podcast who pointed this out because he, Euclid Harry pretty much reproduces Baker's response. So what does Baker say in response to Kaufman's plea to send him individuals for sterilization? So uh, according to uh, Harry, um, he, he basically said that any suggestion for the general sterilization for the blind would meet with my active and strenuous opposition. However, where any blind person's loss of sight was ophthalmologically certified as due to hereditary conditions or social disease, which might in any way be transmitted to offspring, I would heartily support sterilization, end quote. So that was uh, Eddie Baker's response to uh, Kaufman, basically saying, I don't Mm -hmm. agree with sterilizing blind people en masse, and Mm -hmm. would very, very strongly oppose it. But on the other hand, if there are people who are congenitally born with blindness, in other words, that's okay with me if you want to, if you propose to um, sterilize. I think... Yeah, I think it's important to, to sort of point out that the records here from 38 and 39 come from the National Archives and come from uh, a, a file box essentially called Prevention of the Blindness Sterilization Program. So that was really the thinking then, um, as we're seeing in, in the letter and, and uh, Captain Baker's response, is that they really believe that 
and then even Dr. Ritchie, who you read about in the the, the letter, uh, they really believe that this was what needed to be done to prevent blindness in Canada. Can you can you go on, Jeffrey, and and tell us what else Euclid Harry says about this? On page one hundred and twenty-eight of Euclid Harry's book Journey to Independence, um, which is a, a history of the um, Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Um, even pre-CNIB, but also basically history of the CNIB published in uh, 2005. Um, and so Euclid Harry writes, within the year, Baker had authorized the CNIB District Board in Brockville, Ontario, to cover the costs of having four blind men sterilized. At the time, sterilization was generally accepted worldwide as an acceptable practices in cases of congenital defects. And that's that's the end of that section of the of the book. Mm-hmm. Then he moves on to another topic. What do we do with this information, Jeffrey? I mean, you know, this is obviously disturbing. And is this just ancient history that happened, you know, almost a hundred years ago? And we accept that, you know, this is the way it was. Or how do we react to this now? Well, I th- yeah, that's a good question. I think we should certainly very strongly reflect on it and critique it. I would say, when I look at it just as ancient history, but rather as history that, of course, still affects us, these ideas that disabled people, particularly people born with disabilities, should not be reproducing. Uh, and, and remember, by the way, Eddie Baker was not uh, born with blindness. He acquired mm-hmm. blindness in World War One. He was a veteran mm-hmm. who uh, served uh, in World War One in the Canadian Armed Forces and, and became mm-hmm. blind and was one of the leaders of CNIB. So there was a different point of view towards people who were congenitally blind in the sense that they were believed, oh, well, they were born with it, they could therefore pass it on to people, unlike someone who, mm. such as Captain Baker, who was acquired blindness. Um, I see. So, so that, that, was, that was seemed to be, there seemed to be a difference there in thinking. Mm-hmm, exactly. If you acquired blindness, it was okay. You weren't. It wasn't congenital. But if you were born with it, oh, oh, you might pass it on. And so that's a very big concern because that sort of attitude is still with us. It's not gone away. And in in the context of the late 1930s and of this period, we also got to be careful of the statement that uh, uh, Mr. Harry makes at the very end. At the time, sterilization was generally accepted worldwide as an acceptable mm-hmm. practice. Because it wasn't, uh, was it? No, it was not. Not everybody. There were certainly large numbers of people who did agree with it, but that's only if you look at the elite people in positions of power. There were um, people, and there were some dis- uh, people in elite positions who disagreed it, and there were certainly disabled people who disagreed with it as well. Uh, so we can't just make it sound like everybody agreed with sterilization. Yeah. Even in the letter that you read out, the Canadian Medical Protective Services, which they're not around anymore, but it looks like maybe it's forerunner to something like the, the CMA, the Canadian Medical Association, or something like that, say that they believe sterilization to be illegal, whether voluntary or involuntary. So Kaufman acknowledges that in his letter, that he's doing something that they would consider illegal, but yet says my my parent information bureau has sterilized over 500 people in canada that's right peter uh, that the, the prejudices that were re- being reflected in these rep- uh, views of kaufman weren't mm-hmm. universally accepted by all people in positions right. of power there were people who were yeah. opposed to it. yeah tell me about the, the the supreme court case in the us um yes which... there was a supreme court case in the united states in 1927 which uh, was buck v bell and 
Um, Carrie Buck was ordered sterilized in the state of Virginia, and uh, it was basically passed. And sterilization has often been seen as, a, or, and eugenics has been seen as a project mainly of the of the right. But unfortunately, there are many people on the left who are considered themselves progressives, who were very pro eugenics. And this was the case in the Buck v. Bell case. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was supposedly one of the more liberal members of the Supreme Court at that time was resounding in his support of sterilization, mm-hmm. who came mm-hmm. out and said um, three generation of imbeciles are not are, are enough, um, as oh referring to Carrie Buck's, his mo- mm-hmm. her mother and her daughter. Um, and Carrie really? Buck was uh, sterilized, involuntarily sterilized, uh, and it opened the floodgates to uh, mass, a large number of sterilizations in the U.S., up until the late '60s, about sixty thousand um, people in the United States. So, yeah, there, and there we we do know there were definitely people with with disabilities who were opposed to sterilization. There were also mm-hmm. some who were in favor, um, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean mm-hmm. we should therefore say, "Oh, well, then it must have been okay." Um, mm-hmm. Nobody should have had the right to involuntarily sterilize other people against mm-hmm. their consent, and it was it was extremely high-handed and dubious in the manner in which it was undertaken. And it mm-hmm. was also something that was looked upon by some of the more um, rabid pro-eugenicists as uh, a precursor to to destroying people with disabilities physically, as took place in Nazi Germany and parts mm-hmm. of occupied Europe under under the Nazi rule uh, during world well, sterilization from 1933 to 39, and then the mass murder from 39 to 45. So that was its ultimate goal: was the, yeah. the elimination of disabled people. And, right. Um, and so Kaufman, as much as he, uh, he he might be portrayed as a philanthropist, he, mm-hmm. he was really no friend of, of blind people or of disabled mm-hmm. people generally. He wanted people who were born with any sort of disabilities, physical, mental, or sensory, to be out of this world. He thought it was well, best that they be eliminated. Yeah. And it was really a, a, an elitist perspective towards mm-hmm. poor and marginalized people uh, of why he, how he wanted to get rid of them, basically, um, mm-hmm. and to prevent their continued uh, propagation. And he even another quote also is worth quoting from uh, Angus McLaren's book, um, mm-hmm. where he's uh, on page one hundred and seventeen, where Kaufman is is writing mm-hmm. is quoted in this book from uh, a letter from the nineteen thirties says uh, summing up his reasons for sterilization and birth control, where Kaufman concluded. I have said and still think we must choose between birth control and revolution. What did he mean uh, by he that, afraid, birth control or revolution? Well, this was during the Depression. He was afraid the poor working class would rise up in revolution and overthrow the um, capitalist order, the social order, of which hmm. he was very clearly a part. Therefore, we have to stop these nasty poor people from overthrowing us. And so the best way to do it is birth control by limiting their numbers. They're going to take over and we got to be careful. So he, he was genuinely fearful huh. of poor people. So that gives us a really clear picture of Kaufman and who he was and, and how we need to be careful even today about those sorts of views. How do we explain Baker though? Let's go back to him for a minute. Yeah, it's a bit of um, it's a bit of a puzzle, isn't it? So you, as you said, you've got Baker coming from World War One, he's a professional, he's an engineer, he's blinded, and he really makes it his life work to promote 
the well-being, if you like, if I can put it that way, and now in quotation marks, well-being of both military and civil-blinded individuals. He was the managing director of the CNIB from its founding right up until 1960. Um, he is... I would say somewhat memorialized. If we go back to Serge Durflinger and the, um, the podcast that we had with him, which was you know podcast number two in our series, he calls these people veterans with a vision, that Baker had a vision. But yet we see he, what do we say? He falls down in this area. He's a victim of, is he a victim of his time? Like, how do we, what do we do about Baker? Do we... Do we do what's happening now? Do we do we cancel him as to say, no, we got to erase him from history? What what do we do with somebody who we thought was a visionary and thought was a type of hero, but now we understand, as you read in the letter, he, he supported sterilization. In fact, the CNIB, CNIB paid for the costs of people to be sterilized. Yes, um, I would certainly not agree with erasing him or, or canceling any him, Eddie Baker, or anyone else from history. I, I think we have to uh, account for different people's positions and critique them, but not erase them. Certainly, uh, history is history, and we have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that includes uh, people whom we have often thought of heroically, but then as time goes on, we've reassessed. I earlier referred to some people with disabilities who were pro-eugenics, uh, Helen Keller, right. for example. Right, was, that's right. A, a great hero uh, and admirable figure. So I would say uh, we what we do is we reassess and, and, and critique where they their positions, where they are from, also recognizing they were coming from a position of privilege, uh, um, mm -hmm. In the case of Eddie Baker, of course, he was very well mm -hmm. connected, and uh, he was um, certainly did make positive contributions to the welfare of people who are blind. There's no question mm -hmm. about that in terms of his work with the CNIB, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't be criticized as anybody else in positions of power or leadership who took multiple different positions, many of which... And not only now, but even at that time, were quite questionable. Mm -hmm. But the whole question of memorializing people is another issue. Mm -hmm. um, Someone mm -hmm. like Kaufman, for example, is memorialized in different places, in, like a YMCA, and a school is named after him in Kitchener, although they're trying to change the school name. And I know you've mentioned that Eddie Baker is memorialized. Like, I don't agree that it's cancelling. I would say it's correcting culture, <laughs> the tearing mm -hmm, down of the mm -hmm. statues of the Civil War generals, for example. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly mm -hmm. not something new. People have been tearing down statues for centuries. Go right. back to the French Revolution. What do you think the mm -hmm. French revolutionaries did? One of the first things they tore down the statue of Louis, <laughs> of Louis XIV at Versailles. And so it's right. not exactly new. <laughs> yeah. um, nobody was canceling Louis XIV. They're in the history mm -hmm. books. They'll always be debated what they did. Nobody's canceling mm -hmm. Edward Baker. What mm -hmm. we're saying is people who did things that cause great harm in their lifetime do not deserve to be publicly memorialized. And, and they tend to be very powerful, if I may be blunt, white men, mm -hmm. speaking as a white man. And we, what? why are there not more people who are from more diverse backgrounds, racialized backgrounds, or, or women who are, are memorialized? Now, there are more who are being recognized now, but that's only after large-scale efforts over many uh, generations of people pointing these problems out that people who are memorialized, places that are memorialized, need to acknowledge those who, who have been often left out of public memorials. 
thank you very much for walking us through this this rather difficult issue and then putting in such wonderful context for what we need to do with it now. So in our last three episodes of eugenics, we've talked a lot about the different forms that it has taken over the years. And I really hope our listeners came away from these podcasts with a greater understanding of how to recognize what eugenics might look like today. It, you know, it may not be out and out sterilization, but it may, the system may be asking you to, you know, question your capacity to parent or whatever. It's just really important, I think, for us to recognize what soft eugenics might look like today in our lives. So on our next podcast, we're going to be finishing up our series on accessible library services. And on this episode, we're going to be talking to George Kirscher. He's been very involved in very various levels of accessible publishing. And he's going to be talking to us about setting up standards for formatting and recording. And as well, we're going to be talking to Kieran LeBlanc, who is from the Book Publishers Association of Alberta. And we're going to talk a little bit about where book publishers are at with providing accessible format to visually impaired library users. So thanks for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you in our next podcast. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer with the assistance of Jacob Schmansky, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Finally, we would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21.